0: Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Knockham Siegel Network, knockhamsegel.com, and on the NSN app. And we are back with part two of our discussion of the book American Shtetl, The Making of Curious Joel, a Hasidic Village in Upstate New York, authored by Nomi Stolzenberg and David N. Myers, available for purchase I will show for them right now if they don't want to be the commercial capitalists that I am themselves, uh, of uh, USC and UCLA, respectively taking a deep dive into a very unique municipality right here in New York State, something that many of our listeners have heard of but might not be totally familiar with. Uh, So far, two-part series, and they have threatened that we might have three and four after this if we don't cover enough ground. Today, David and Nomi, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to continue our conversation.
0: Great to be here, Michael.
1: Okay, so actually, since we're doing
0: a part two, and rarely do I do part two, because kind of cover breaking news, is KJ is just, uh, and and the idea we've discussed in the last, in case people didn't listen to last week's podcast, what makes KJ so interesting to you, and what makes it so interesting to the outside observer, Jewish and non-Jewish alike?
2: Right. So what makes it so interesting to me is that it is um, a community, I think, almost without exception, perhaps let's just say without exception in the long history of the Jewish diaspora. Um, it is marked by uh, a remarkable degree of homogeneity. Um, almost all residents, with a handful of exceptions, of the community are Satra Hasidim. Um So that makes it very unlike uh, the shtetl of yore, uh, which was much more Jewishly diverse uh, than KJ was, um, that, as the philosophers would say, is the necessary condition for its uniqueness. The sufficient condition for its, its uniqueness is that it is a legally recognized municipality. So you have a group of Hasidic Jews who have governmental power. Um, and that really, I think, sets it apart from um, most – almost all other concentrations of Uh, of Jews um, in the diaspora. Israel is obviously a major exception. We can talk about an earlier precedent, which is the town of New Square, established 16 years before KJ, but it does not have the same uh, uh, demography nor, for that matter, political heft of KJ. Um, And so part of what is so important about the story is it's not just that there's uh, a a legally recognized municipality. It's not just that there's a group of Hasidic Jews who – Uh, who possess governmental power, uh, they have very effectively used the instrumentalities of the state to permit and enable their growth.
1: Yeah. And I would say from the standpoint of American society and American culture and politics, I think what makes this community an object of such intense fascination is it really tests the limits of America's commitment to tolerance. It poses the question. How far should American society go and how far does society American go in tolerating a separatist religious community, in tolerating religious separatism? And it reflects a really deep-seated and I think ultimately unresolvable tension within uh, uh, our constitutional commitments to— religious tolerance and religious freedom um, and pluralism more generally, because it's extremely discomforting to acknowledge that there are any limits to tolerance, right? Because that seems like a betrayal of the very commitment to tolerance. But on the other hand, I think this community raises the question um, as to whether we need to Recognize some limits because one of the things that it illustrates is that even the most separatist community Can never really completely separate itself from society Which is to say its actions are going to have spillover effects on everyone else And so then the question comes whether with that come obligations to the outside society
0: Okay, so Let's take a step back, as you do in your book, to Satmar, and Satmar even in Hungary, uh, the, the, town, the sorry, city of Satmar, uh, which, of course, was not a homogeneous Satmar village. Uh, in fact, it was, uh, it was not even majority Hasidic. Uh, and certainly when Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum of Yolish uh, became the, the, vill- the city, Rav, there— uh, it actually was several iterations, several tries, in order to become that. It wasn't necessarily the path of the typical Hasidic Rebbe in uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, is it can it be said that they accomplished something in the U.S. which would not have been possible in Europe?
2: Yes, I think absolutely so. Um, first of all, you're you're absolutely right about just the, that historical point. The town of Sotmer, Sotmer, which was first. Um, uh, part of Hungary as part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but significantly, for the purposes of our story, was Romanian after 1920 and known as Satumari. Uh, Reb Yoelich is uh, elected Tan Ruv in 1928, but he doesn't assume the position until 1934. Um, it is interesting to note that he combines, therefore, the the functions of a Hasidic, a Hasidic Rebbe and the Rav. Uh, the rabbi of a town. There are two very distinct functions. He combines the two, which is really significant. And an anticipation, I think, of the combining of uh, secular and religious authority in KJ itself. Um, what we see in back in Europe was um, two things. One, a kind of ferocious um, commitment to upholding principles of spiritual purity, especially with respect to other Jews. Um, uh, there is, in the Teitelbaum family line, just a kind of baked-in fierceness uh, to combat contamination wherever it should arise, um, and that was present in, in Rabbi Elish. But at the same time, there was also um, an intuition on his part, uh, particularly manifest um, in his time as Ruven in, 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 in Satomare, that in order to um, grow the Jewish community, you had to um, in, be in conversation with. Uh, accommodate to gentile or secular uh, authorities, and so that uh, recognition was present already in uh, in Europe. Um, but what you don't have um, in Europe is what uh, is enabled in the United States, which is a kind of audacious move, um, uh, taking uh, a portion, not just of the community, but of the Jewish community, separating it and making it its own municipality. So we know of earlier instances. Maybe you, your your listeners are familiar with, I'm sure, with Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, um, who uh, separated his community in Frankfurt away from the recognized uh, Gemeinde or community. So the government did have established religion there. It did recognize an official Jewish community, and Samson Raphael Hirsch uh, sought to extricate his community, his neo-Orthodox community, away from the mainstream. That was possible, but making that a legally recognized municipality was unimaginable. That is what the United States enabled, both by saying we don't have a single um, recognized community uh, recognized by the state. We don't recognize a single Jewish Gemeinde. We recognize sort of Citizens, and we also allow for the freedom of religion, Um, and using those two um, instrumentalities in the United States, um, under duress, uh, the leaders of 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 the Satmar community understood that they could establish a legally recognized political entity, Um, and again. That is not something that was imaginable uh, back in uh, the old country. Mm-hmm. So that me- takes me I- – oh, sorry. I-
1: no, I was just going to add a gloss on that. I, you know What David has just described um, is a phenomenon that we call communitarianism from the bottom up, or you might think of it as municipal incorporation from the bottom up, or you might even think of it as religious establishment from the bottom up. Because what we see in the United States is the exact obverse of what we what, 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 what Jewish communities experienced in Europe. You do not have any top-down official recognition of the Jewish community or of any religious community. You do not have official top-down um, grants of um, uh, jurisdiction or political powers or charters to any particular subcommunity, as one sometimes saw in Europe. And many communitarian critics of liberalism have, you know, prognosticated that the consequence of the withdrawal of that kind of top-down um, form of protection and recognition for religious minorities would result in the disintegration of traditional religious communities. But in fact, what we see illustrated in Karius Yole is just the opposite. In the absence of official recognition of the community, the community was able to use the bottom-up modalities, really first and foremost of the market, of a free market, of a market in real estate, um, but also freedom of religion, to establish a private enclave which in turn easily transforms itself into an officially recognize, recognized municipality, um, which operates using secular power not to directly enforce religious law, but nonetheless to serve the interests of this very particular. Very homogeneous religious group.
2: Right, again enabled by the purchase of private property. That's sure. really the first. Well, uh, property um,
0: owners yeah. can come together and create a village mm-hmm. if should they want. They've done it elsewhere mm-hmm. in the state. In fact, in some very expensive mm-hmm. areas, I should say, uh, they they have done that. I think there's one village, I mean, one of the smallest villages in New York State. I think is a total of sixty houses. It's known as West Hampton Dunes. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's you know the the last election they had. I think uh, four people voted or something like that because most people don't even live there. But we'll leave that aside for a second. A little piece of uh, New York Americana there. Uh, I, I, Both your comments lead me directly to the next question, and I think it's kind of to describe the factionalism and how it plays into the municipality. But the st- village was actually sued, uh, strangely enough, uh, for those who are familiar, under Arlupa, which is usually... The mechanism, which is the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, obviously a mouthful, usually used on behalf of the Orthodox community to gain rights such as arov or other zoning rights. And uh, it's been used in, in, in Nassau County, it's been used in Westchester County, it's been used in New Jersey, it's been used in Rockland County. But the dissident faction, known as the KJ Alliance, uh, I think in 2010 or 2011. I'm just looking at my my own uh, glosses on your on your book here. Uh, use that to sue the village of Curious Joel to say that their dissident or minority rights were not being respected. We kind of alluded to, you know, issues in, uh, in our last show about between the factions, the Aronis and the Zalis, or the Bideyol and and the majority faction. But particularly with regard to a lawsuit, I mean, that's really something to have that happening in the Curious Joel.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Sure. Maybe I'll set the stage. Yeah. Why don't I set the stage and then Nomi can drill down on some of the legal issues just about factionalism in KJ. So um, it was an idyllic two years uh, in the history of KJ um, between 1977 when, when the village was incorporated in 1979, August 1979, when the founding Rebbe, Reb Yoilish, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, uh, passed away. Um, Leaving behind no male heirs. Um, the one most logical candidate to succeed him first as uh, as rabbi uh, uh, of KJ, um, not Rebbe of this, the, the Satmar Hasidic dynasty, was his nephew, uh, Rabbi Moshe, Taitelbaum known as the Bayach Moshe. Um, and in fact, it was decided relatively shortly after uh, Rabbi Yolish's death to appoint uh uh Reb Moisha as 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 rabbi. The Sigator as uh his yeah. Um almost immediately his appointment um attracted opposition uh from a group of people who believe themselves to be the true heirs of the legacy of Reb, Reb And f- in fascinating fashion, they um, established a circle of dissidents around the figure of Yolish's widow, the Rebitzin, uh Alta Faiga. Um, they became known as Faiga's uh, men, Feiga's um, men. And they are really the core of what is, in some sense, the um, most stringent circle of opponents within KJ today known as the Bnei or B'nai Yol, uh the sons of Joel. Um, so that's – dissidence takes – rise almost immediately upon uh, that, that first uh, – transfer of power. One way to look at K.J. is that it has been in continuous turmoil over succession since the death of Rebbe Um because at, there, there was another very significant development that came a bit later. In 1984, uh, Rab Moshe Teitelbaum, the Bayach Moshe, appointed his eldest son, uh, Aaron, as Ruv of Kiryasiol, uh, so he granted that position to him in anticipation of um, ultimately handing over the reins of the Satmar dynasty to Reb Aaron. But then 15 years later, in a very surprising move, he decided to really divide the Satmar Empire into two, not to uh, grant Reb Aaron a control over the entire uh, kingdom, as it were, but to divide it, especially between its two major centers. We've been talking about Kiryasiol, but the larger center, The original founding of the Satmar dynasty in the United States was Williamsburg, Um, and Reb Reb Moshe essentially divided the empire between um, KJ, where where Reb Aaron was uh, the chief authority, and Williamsburg, where his third son, Reb Zalman Leib, was appointed as rabbi. Um, And that, in effect, created um, uh, a kingdom with two kings, uh, exactly what – uh, Rabbi Yolish's father tried to avoid by sending him away, um, lest there be a battle over succession as he was on his deathbed. Um, his father was committed to the uh, passage of power to his eldest son, uh, uh, who happened to be Rabbi Moshe's father. Um, so we now have, in 1999, a Satmar Empire divided into two um, Aaron in KJ, Zalman Leib in Williamsburg. Um, And that spawned uh, really um, many, numerous waves of battles, legal, uh, uh, familial, uh, cultural, um, and sometimes even physical between the two sides that uh, uh, gained momentum after the death of Rabbi Marshall Teitelbaum, the second Satmar Rebbe in 2006. Um, At this point in time, 2006, we have two main factions, plus a third, smaller faction, Benayol. We continue into the uh, – further in time, um, and these three factions, as it were, um, have become quite institutionalized. Reb Aaron is the mainstream faction in Kiryasiol, Reb zalman Laib and the Zalis are the mainstream faction in Williamsburg, and all three have robust sets of institutions – Moistis, schools, mikvahs, wedding halls, in Kiryas Yol, Um, you have, um, as one famous uh, Satmar activist said now, in a a kingdom too big for just one party to control. Um, And in fact, um, he sort of transformed the competition into a kind of advantage by saying competition is both necessary and good in order to sustain uh, the operation. Let Nomi say a word.
1: Yeah, back. so so David has uh, described um, as succinctly as I think it's possible the really um, complex and intense internal political divisions that emerged in the Satmar community really immediately upon the Rebbe's death. You asked about how these divisions and, and really quite ferocious conflicts played out in the American courts and in American law. And the first thing, I think we talked about this in our previous discussion, it's you know one of the most breathtaking things is that they played out in American courts at law um, in defiance of the norm that all sides profess to adhere to, which is you should never take internal I... disputes to a Gentile court and um, that norm has been honored in the breach to a quite astonishing degree. Um, but you were asking about the claims that are made in um, the many, many cases in which the group branded as the dissident faction has has sued the village um, or, or sort of other um, entities representing the establishment party. And in particular, um, you asked a question about cases in which the dissidents invoked what we call our lupa, you know, Um, the acronym for the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. And for for your listeners who don't know, that is a statute that was passed by Congress um, in the 90s after the Supreme Court in 1990 issued a really important and exceedingly controversial decision authored, interestingly, by Justice Scalia, which really curtailed the degree to which um, the Supreme Court would interpret the free exercise clause of the First Amendment to provide protection to religious groups who perceive themselves um, uh, to be who who wanted to challenge state actions that they perceived to have a discriminatory impact on them, that they perceived to burden um, their free exercise of religion. And in response to that 1990 decision curtailing the degree of protection um, for religious communities, Congress first passed, which what may be better known to your listeners, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, right. so-called, because it was trying to restore the more protective standard for interpreting the free exercise clause um, that had existed before 1990. And the Supreme Court back in the 1990s wasn't too sympathetic to, to Congress's effort to do that, and it actually more or less, um, subject to some nuances, struck down the federal religious free Religious, uh, the Fre- <laughs> the Religious Freedom <laughs> Restoration Act as it applied to states, and in response to that, Congress said, "Okay, back to the drawing board. We're going to try again, but we're going to pass a statute that limits this strong form of protection for religious communities to challenges to land use um, uh, decisions and and also to situations involving so-called institutionalized person. So that is one of the laws that provides religious communities uh, protection from religious discrimination, from state actions that have a discriminatory effect upon them. Right, but KJ itself Um, was being
0: accused of practicing discrimination. and
1: that is one of, it's not the only law, but so so there were many, many cases and the dissidents um, uh, invoked this act and other civil rights statutes that prohibit religious discrimination, claiming that they were the victims of religious discrimination by the village. Now, how did courts respond to those claims? Um, Mainly by ducking them. This kind of claim, you know, there are many, many different cases. In the very first cases, um, which involved um, which were really focused on um, denials of access to the cemetery. Um, In those very early cases, uh, state courts showed some some sympathy, but from, to, to the dissidents claim, but from the beginning, the courts wrestled with the question, the issue, because what did the village say in defense? It said, the dissidents aren't a religious minority. There's no religious differences here, so this isn't religious discrimination. Um, If there's any kind of discrimination, which of course the the village denied that, but, but insofar as the village could be said to be exercising its municipal powers in a way that was arguably discriminatory against the dissidents, the village said, That's not discrimination on the basis of religion. What's going on here is not a conflict between two religious groups. What's going on here is a, a, a political conflict within a single religious group. And in case after case, courts wrestled with that question and in most cases really found a way. There were various reasons and procedural mechanisms why courts really never issued a definitive pronouncement as to how that issue should be resolved. One of them is because, and what I'm about to describe, you'll see it really sort of puts the, the dissidents in a double bind. If they don't succeed in getting the courts to characterize their dispute with the, relig- with the village as a religious dispute, Right? If, they, if they fail to do that, then they c- can't claim that they constitute a religious minority that's being discriminated against on the basis of religion. But on the other hand, if they do succeed in getting the court to characterize the conflict as a religious conflict, as, as uh, a conflict between people with religious differences, then the courts invoke uh, a doctrine that says – it's impermissible for secular courts to intervene in internal religious disputes. So there's a real double bind there, and uh, you know that uh, so-called religious question doctrine has been one stratagem that some of courts use to say, we cannot adjudicate this dispute because it's an internal religious dispute. In other instances, Um, It was the fact that um, in 1997, the dissidents made the fateful decision to agree to a settlement of the trial, which was the one case that perhaps was most likely to have uh, issued in a judgment in their favor, but um, they pulled back from the brink and agreed to settle the case, and then ever afterwards, every time they tried to sue the village again, the 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 courts. Interestingly, this this is a, you know, this is decades of litigation presided over by a very be- notable federal judge, Judge Jed Rakoff, right. who was recently in the news. Sure. Um, uh, and and every time the dissidents came back, he said he invoked what we call the doctrine of race judicata, which is simply fa- fancy law Latin for saying. You've already litigated this case. You've already settled it. Uh, you're not allowed to relitigate the same old dispute.
0: Okay, so we've got four minutes left. So I want to kind of talk about where we can go from here. or Where does KJ go from here? Exponential growth. I mean, just, uh, and it's a small municipality. They've finally gotten their own town. And so, in theory, the borders are a little more set. Yes, there are spillover into neighboring communities, whether they build South Blooming Grove and Blooming Grove and Woodbury and to other places outside of the environs. But the question is, where do Hasidic Jews live, or where can they live in a place that is, is comfortable for them with this type of growth if they have, in a sense, and try and live without conflict?
2: Well... Uh, except for the last clause, I'd say the answer is obviously Orange County, New York, <laughs> is where they live. Um, look, I think several things are going to happen. Um, one, the population of KJ is going to grow uh, at, a, at, a, at a rapid clip. Um, the last decade saw 60% growth. Um, you're aware, Michael, I know of 32, some 32,000
0: people at this point,
2: right, according to the last- 32,000 people, yeah. You're aware of estimates that KJ could grow to a population of 155,000 in, in 18 years. My own sort of back-of-the-envelope estimates are you know, what was estimated by the community itself that by 2035 um, or so, let's say 2040, somewhere between 75 and 90,000 people if current rates of growth continue, and I expect they will. Um, so I think there are going to be more Satmar Hasidim um, in KJ. I think there are going to be more people leaving the community uh, as well, and I think there are going to be more people who are – Uh, As uh, my colleague Ayala Fader has described it, double lifers, people who remain in the community but really live a kind of mental world outside. Um, And that is largely due to uh, the effects of the internet and social media, which have sort of transported some people in the community just to another mental space. They live their um, mental life outside of the community, but physically they're very much uh, still present. So I think all. All three of those communities are going to in, in, increase in size as the rate of uh, as the birth rate continues um, at its uh, at its uh, current rate, um, because KJ is in many ways deemed an ideal. I mean, a, 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 just an idyllic setting with all the institutions that um, a Haredi Jew would want to have, um, with the capacity to control one's fate in a way that very few communities uh, today possess. I think there are two challenges. One, um, we talked about this briefly last time, um, natural resources, um, water, land, and sewage, like three key resources that in some say – in some sense really define the fate of suburban communities. Um, The struggle over those resources will necessarily intensify as KJ continues to grow, and therefore relationships with neighbors uh, will become, uh, once again – Um, I think, fraught. Um, I say once again because the decision to create the town of Palmtree was in some sense um, uh, a resolution to bring to an end an era of acrimonious relations between KJ and its neighbors. So I think that um, set of relations between KJ and its neighbors will uh, become a front-burner issue again and repeatedly. And I think KJ may have to think um uh, of more creative ways than the, those used in the past to make its way around that the second issue relates back to nomi's point about the limits of of toleration um I, I think especially as kj continues to grow as it becomes an an ever more powerful presence in orange county not just uh geographically but politically um it's really going to be essential to ask um whether you know the degree of educational isolation uh, that, uh, that it practices in its private religious school system will be sustainable, um, by which I mean will it be necessary to devote new attention to civic values, mm-hmm. the values of democracy, that uh, will be required both to navigate its relations with its neighbors and uh, to really dwell in an America that is uh, uh, sustainable and harmonious in the 21st century?
0: Okay, well, if that's the last word, we're going we're gonna to close out part two. Uh, we'll leave that uh, for a uh, to-be-continued. The book is American Shtetl, The Making of Curious Joel, an acidic village in upstate New York. Nomi Stolzenberg, David Myers, thank you so much once again for joining us. Uh, absolutely fascinating book, fascinating topic. I recommend everybody go out and, and read it, and uh, certainly does approaches it from an insider's uh, perspective. As opposed to so many times when people look at the Hasidic community, they do not have, at least, you know, what many of our listenership and myself consider to be a perspective that really uh, kind of gets it. So thank you for enlightening us.
1: Thank Thank you you. so much.
0: Okay, this is West, That's it for this week. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.